Hello everyone and welcome back. It is grand to see you all. I know I'm running a bit late, but this week has been a little bit wild. Um, I've I've got a I've got somebody close to me who's going through a hard time, uh, but I was able to get a very positive phone call about that earlier today. Um, so that's in good shape. Um, let's see. Uh, editing was pretty wild this week. Uh, last week's episode, my voice mod hadn't recorded properly, so I had to do a bunch of ADR for that. That was no good, but I got that figured out, and so we're fine there. Just took a lot of stuff that's pretty much remedied now, but uh, still, still got wild on me. <laughs> hey, gang. Hey, y'all. How you doing? How you doing? What are you up to? I've been I've been seeing a lot of uh, discussion about beekeeping. Um, uh, my my good good apiarists. <laughs> there is a uh, there's a channel. It is a Russian YouTube channel called. Um, I shouldn't say that. I wouldn't call like this like an American YouTube channel, would I? No. Um, uh, there is a there is a YouTube channel uh, by a gent in Russia. I believe he's like a lawyer, but his, uh, all of his videos are about kind of like uh, bushcraft and survivalism stuff. Um, more like, I guess, homesteading almost than, than like, uh, you know, go into the woods with just a bowie knife and create a, create a shelter for yourself. Um, but, uh, yeah, he goes out into, into the forests and, uh, makes different things. He's built a log cabin. He's got this little sort of spot that he hangs out and he's made himself this little kind of uh, this cute little spot out there, but his videos are kind of divided half and half between doing that and then uh, fabrication videos and like metalworking videos and such about him making the tools that he uses out there. Um, uh, yes, it's called Advoco Makes, A-D-V-O-K-O, Advoco Makes. Um, really interesting, um, and the videos are like super calming. Um, just the, the voice that he uses and everything. Uh, some of his earlier videos are just like, they're fine, but his more recent ones, he's just got this like really quiet, calming voice. Um, but uh, yeah, one of, the, one of the videos that he did, um, Advoco, A-D-V-O-K-O, um, Advoco Makes, just M-A-K-E-S. Um, and one of the videos that he's done is about bottle beekeeping. Um, he grabbed a bunch of, when he builds tools, he goes all in. He is, uh, I guess, a very talented fabricator, if not a professional one. Um, and, uh, yeah, Hogwartsipi says, yeah, oh yeah, I've watched him, the bottle beekeeping video. Yes, uh, folks, um, I think I might have even put it in the Discord at some point, or tweeted it or something, but, um, yeah, Advoco makes, um, let me, here, let me find a video, let me find this video, I'll just link it over in Discord. This is what I gotta do. I have to like get accustomed to not being the like the, the super theatrical uh, streamer. There are lots of streamers who who can like get by being more relaxed than I am, but for whatever reason, I can't manage to make myself do it. Uh, let's see. Advoco makes bottle beekeeping. Um, here we go. Yeah, I think this is the one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it, it's it's just funny, like listening to his voice. He's he's just a super enthusiastic uh, uh, 
um, kind of outdoorsman, but also it seems like he's got some serious interests in uh, conservation and sustainability. Um, and so, A, I'll put this over in Twitch chat, but also let me pop this into Discord. Where should I put this? I guess I'll put it, you know what, we're talking about it here anyway, so I'll just put it directly into this channel. Um, hey, why am I being a fool? Let me just pop it all over the place. I'll put it in here and over in general chat. Oh, man, I'm going crazy. Oh, and one in creativity. Why not? <laughs> just gonna put it everywhere. I'll just put it in the notifications channel. Why the heck not? Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, if y'all are wondering about that, uh, some very cool ones uh, that he's done for his, his sort of like his camp specifically, but um, this video that I've posted here is this one about bottled beekeeping. And um, it's super cool. And one of the things that I would eventually like to do if I own, if I ever own property that I can uh, sort of responsibly keep bees. I would love to do that. It would be like one of my very first priorities is to keep some bees. So um, to all of you good folks who are looking to get into that, uh, I commend you. I think it's a great plan. Um, uh, low negative impact and potentially high positive impact. Uh, and uh, I was not aware of these masonry bees. Um, I think it's very interesting to have bees who are, who are, you know, trained bricklayers. And I think bees building stone structures is potentially dangerous for us all, but, you know, uh, we gotta support the bees in whatever they wanna do. If they all, if they all took up trades, just thinking like, man, we can't get these humans to give a damn about us. <laughs> we need to, we, let's pick up a trade. Uh, I'm just glad they didn't become electricians, because that would have been extra intimidating. Folks, welcome back to the stream. It's gonna be a weird one, I can already tell, and I'm sure some of you who have been with us for a while can start to tell as well when Sam's got that odd boy energy. Um, Hogwarts TP says beekeeping is so awesome, so good for the plants, etc. <laughs> Look, electrician bees are both our, both our greatest allies and the greatest threat to our existence. Um, my plans tonight, folks, are as per usual. We're going to do a bit of review. We're going to read three chapters of book, and those three chapters are going to be the final part of part two. It's the final episode of part two of this book, assuming all goes well. Um, chapters 16, 17, and 18, which means two things. First of all, like I mentioned, it is the final episode of part two of this book, which means we're going to be leading into part three. And what that also means is that today's episode is going to be the last episode during which the vote is still active over on Discord. Do you hear me? Do you hear what I said? That's the last one. Um, now, I may... I, it's, it's looking like... We've got two strong leaders, uh, and then between those two, we do have one that does seem like it's in the lead. Um, it is not terribly surprising to me, but um, I will say that uh, pretty much as of this weekend, as of this weekend, that vote is going to be ended. So keep that in mind. Head on over there and vote. If you have not yet done so, remember to vote for as many as you like. Uh, you can vote for lots of them if you wish uh, because I would love to read something that many of you are interested in um, I, I like the system a lot more than just you being forced to vote for a single one I think that's going to be great um, so 
good folks. Uh, Hogwarts Hippie expressing some excitement about one of the potential options, and I am really glad that you're excited about it. Uh, I am too. Like I said, for some of these longer ones, and uh, I think the, the 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 leaders that are currently up there are both included in this, I'm going to read them one book at a time, and then we will take votes. Uh, the base vote will be, essentially, do you want me to continue this series, or are we going to, you know, hop over to something else? Because, um, you know, I do, I do have concerns that we might get down into some of the, some of the, the longer portions, the less action, uh, action-packed portions of some of these books, and, you know, they might not be quite as, they might not be what everyone expected, um, and so, you know, I want to, I want to really take a chance and head back over and, and make sure that I'm covering all my bases, so if y'all want to move on to something else for a little while, then we can definitely do so, but I am absolutely committed to getting through full book increments. It's not like we're going to start a series and only get through half a book unless something is seriously wrong, in which case reading might be the last of the... It might be the last of my concerns. <laughs> going to stay hydrated. Uh, last thing before we go into our review. Yesterday's episode of Night School at Vesperal Academy was, uh, I guess... Uh, for whatever reason, my brain is insisting that I call this this type of episode a coda, um, and it's cool and it's a little pretentious, just like I aspire to be. <laughs> so, if you want to know what that means, uh, head on over there and watch yesterday's episode. Um, I'm going to try and edit it down into something useful, but essentially it was kind of a Q&A. We didn't actually play the game yesterday. Uh, we did not play any campaign yesterday. Uh, instead, we took some time and I answered questions for people who were kind of joining in late about the world, about the campaign, about where we're at, about the system that we're using. And so, um, if you're kind of if you've been looking for a spot to jump in on these uh, the, the Wednesday episodes, um, these adventures, because we've spent a lot of time at our secret school for Duskin, for um, uh, for vampires and ghosts and lichen, and uh, now we've entered the second scroll over there. And I'll try to do one of these Coda episodes. Um, uh, sort of in between every scroll, but we've had a couple of fantastic guests on that, uh, and absolutely a ton of fun. Last week's episode was incredible, and this week's episode, like I said, a coda, which is essentially, uh, I'm going to try and do it between each each scroll of the story, um, but we're going to be spending some time away from the castle now as we go on some adventures over into the swamplands. Uh, a little closer to the river, a little closer to the towers. We're probably going to be able to see the towers from where we're at at some point here, uh, across the the miles wide river. But danger abounds. If y'all are wondering just how wild last week's episode got, did we meet a god? Why, yes, we did. So, if you're wondering about those, if you're wondering the best place to jump in, um, A, I do edit those episodes and put them up on YouTube and Spotify, so you should be able to find them there if you want to listen from the beginning, but if that just seems like too much for you right now and you want to try to get caught up regardless, uh, go ahead and check out the Coda episode, um, and that will be, that'll be, I think I'll be posting that in the order, if I can get it edited into something useful, that'll be posted in, uh, that'll actually be posted in the order before last week's episode, because I want it to be right between uh, scrolls one and two. Entering the second scroll of the campaign, very exciting. You could call it almost like a season two, I suppose, but it's not. It's more like a. It's more like these books, how they're 
yes, the story is divided into three books, but each book is divided into three parts. Each part you could sort of call a scroll. That's how I'm organizing them. So that's what that's all about. And uh, do not forget, folks, at any time you can use the playlists command. Uh, and that will bring up the link uh, to a an additional link tree. Link tree slash SCS playlists. Plural. It's plural. Uh, SCS playlists. Uh, that link tree has all of the many links because I know a lot of my stuff is kind of distributed all over the place. Um, and uh, that link, you can actually find that one via my normal link tree. Link tree slash sidecar stories. L I N K T R dot E E slash sidecar stories. That is the link to share and that is the link to follow. If you want to find playlists, the Discord, as you well should, if you are not over there already, uh, and you good folks who have done so, thank you very much. One final thing, Sapphire Lady resubscribed with Prime. Thank you very, very much for your Prime subscription, Sapphire Lady. 13 months, north of a year. Not bad at least. Not bad at least, what am I saying? Not bad in the least, there we go. That's what I meant to say. Let's do some review. Folks. Today, embarking on 16, 17, and 18, which means last week, 14, 13, 14, 15. That's the one. <laughs> That's the one. I hunted it down. 13, 14, and 15. Chapter 13, Katniss is reeling. I think I might start our review like that almost every week, because it's almost always true. This time, Katniss is reeling in the wake of being attacked by PETA. He's been rescued. He's out of the capital. He's here. It's a wonderful reunion. Right up until the point where the darkness in his eyes grows furious and his hands reach out and he clasps them around Katniss's throat. It's dark, folks. Over the course of chapter 13, we learn why PETA would attack Katniss. He's been hijacked. It's a process by which they sort of remind PETA, um, this is this happened while he was in captivity in the capital. They remind PETA of memories of Katniss and, and uh, sort of cause him to think about her while also treating him with small doses of tracker jacker venom. It sort of overlays these memories with a, a feeling of terror and uh, might even fully change them into something that wasn't even true. Um, he thinks that Katniss is a mutt, something created by the Capitol to, to kill all of them, uh, that she will betray them, that Katniss is this dark, evil individual. That's, what, that's what's going on in Peta's brain right now. Uh, but clearly he is not healthy. They're trying to bring him back. They're trying to kind of resuscitate him um, into what he used to be, um, a, a person who loved people, uh, Katniss potentially most of all, but Katniss is not able to, not able to stay in District 13 while he's there and feeling like he does. Um, and so she asks to be sent away. She wants to go to the Capitol, of course, continue the assault right on through to the heart of Pan Am and end this once and for all, but that's not the plan. The plan is to take all the districts and then District 2, and then the capital. And so, she gets sent off to District 2. This is the last bastion of resistance to the resistance. So I guess the last bastion of loyalists to the capital, um, because District 2 has for a long time been where they make some of the weapons uh, and where they supply many of the peacekeepers and where they train them. So District 2 is kind of best buds with the capital of any of the districts. Um, it 
used to be kind of a um, a quarry district, so where they would mine stone, essentially, for buildings and such. Uh, but for a long time, it's been more focused on peacekeeping. Now, by peacekeeping, I do mean to put that in heavy quotes. District 13 has one notable structure. The Nut. It is a mountain, which at one point was sort of, you know, hollowed out in various places to... Uh, to, to ship that stone off to different parts of Pan Am, but now it has been refitted, it's been reinforced, it has been built into kind of a secondary base for the capital. Um, they sort of realized through the first war, seven, uh, 75 years ago, that they would need some sort of additional base just in case something happened to the capital, and that's what the nut is. And so, um, the entirety of the, the loyalists in District 2 have kind of holed up inside this mountain, inside the nut. They have to decide how to crack it, and over the course of their discussions, as Katniss has been sent here to District 2, as has Gale, um, Gale is kind of revealing himself to have kind of a dark streak here. Um, he proposes that they trap everyone inside the mountain and then shut off the airways. These are the people who sent the bombers over to District 8. Um, these are the people who are most loyal to the capital in spite of knowing what the capital is and what they do. Um, this is sort of, that's where Gale is coming from. Whereas Katniss says, I mean, that's like a mining accident. We would, we would never, we, we could never be convinced to do that. How, how can this be something that's passing through your mind, Gale? Instead, they agree to let the train lines out of the nut stay safe, um, and they will, they're going to shut off the airways, they're going to cause an avalanche to, to shut up the vents, but um, they're going to allow people then to escape, and they'll be they will be waiting at the train station for them. Um, when they arrive, it seems like not a lot of people made it out. This was a pretty dark plan overall. And Katniss, kind of realizing this, uh, steps out into danger. She steps out into the courtyard where these um, these individuals from inside the nut are arriving. These are the last of the loyalists. They're, they're loyal to the capital. And Katniss steps out into danger and tries to talk. She reminds both kind of them and herself in a way that the real enemy isn't them. This is just another version of the games where they've been forced to fight one another. Katniss doesn't want to fight people from District 2, people she's never met. You know, yeah, they've trained to be peacekeepers, but overall, this is the, this is the capital's doing, once again. She has this sort of speech that is televised, of course it is, um... But she manages to talk to this individual in the crowd, and after this long impassioned speech, she looks up at the cameras and looks up at the at the the screens and, and hopes to see a, a wave of reconciliation. And instead, she watches herself get shot on television.
Chapter 16. Always. In the twilight of Morphling, Peter whispers the word and I go searching for him. It's a gauzy, violet-tinted world with no hard edges and many places to hide. I push through cloud banks, follow faint tracks, catch the scent of cinnamon, of dill. Once I feel his hand on my cheek and try to trap it, but it dissolves like mist through my fingers. When I finally begin to surface into the sterile hospital room in 13, I remember. I was under the influence of sleep syrup. My heel had been injured after I'd climbed out onto a branch over the electric fence, and I dropped back into 12. Peta had put me into bed, and I had asked him to stay with me while I was drifting off. He had whispered something I couldn't quite catch, but some part of my brain had trapped his single word of reply and let it swim up through my dreams to haunt me now. Always. Morphling dulls the extremes of all emotions, so instead of a stab of sorrow, I simply feel emptiness. A hollow of dead brush where flowers used to bloom. Unfortunately, there's not enough of the drug left in my veins for me to ignore the pain in the left side of my body. That's where the bullet hit. My hands fumble over the thick bandages encasing my ribs, and I wonder what I'm still doing here. It wasn't him, the man kneeling before me on the square, the burned one from the nut. He didn't pull the trigger. It was someone further back in the crowd. There was less of a sense of penetration than the feeling that I'd been struck with a sledgehammer. Everything after the moment of impact is confusion riddled with gunfire. I try to sit up, but the only thing I manage is a moan. The white curtain that divides my bed from the next patient's whips back and Joanna Mason stares down at me. At first I feel threatened, because she attacked me in the arena. I have to remind myself that she did it to save my life. It was part of the rebel plot. But still, that doesn't mean she doesn't despise me. Maybe her treatment of me was all an act for the capital. I'm alive, I say rustily. Yeah, no kidding, brainless. Joanna walks over and plunks down on my bed, sending spikes of pain shooting across my chest. When she grins at my discomfort, I know we're not in for some warm reunion scene. Still a little sore? With an expert hand, she quickly detaches the morphling drip from my arm and plugs it into a socket taped into the crook of her own. They started cutting back my supply a few days ago. They're afraid I'm going to turn into one of those freaks from six. I've had to borrow from you when the coast is clear. Didn't think you'd mind. Mind? How can I mind when she was almost tortured to death by snow after the quarter quell? I have no right to mind, and she knows it. Joanna sighs as the morphling enters her bloodstream. Uh, maybe they were onto something in six. Drug yourself out and paint flowers on your body. Not such a bad life. Seemed happier than the rest of us, anyway. In the weeks since I left 13, she's gained some weight back. A soft down of hair has sprouted on her shaved head, helping to hide some of the scars. But if she's siphoning off my morphling, she's struggling. 
They've got this head doctor who comes around every day, supposed to be helping me recover, like some guy who spent his life in his rabbit's warren is going to fix me up. Complete idiot. At least 20 times in a session, he reminds me that I'm totally safe. I manage a smile. It's a truly stupid thing to say, especially to a victor. As if such a state of being ever existed anywhere for anyone. How about you, Mockingjay? Do you feel totally safe? Oh, yeah. Right up until I got shot, I say. Please, that bullet never even touched you. Sinna saw to that, she says. I think of the layers of protective armor in my Mockingjay outfit. But the pain came from somewhere. Broken ribs? Not even. Bruised pretty good. The impact ruptured your spleen. They couldn't repair it. She gives a dismissive wave of her hand. Don't worry, you don't need one. And if you did, they'd find you one, wouldn't they? It's everybody's job to keep you alive. Is that why you hate me? I ask. Partly, she admits. Jealousy is certainly involved. I also think it's... Well, you're a little hard to swallow. With your tacky romantic drama and your defender of the helpless act. Only it's not an act which makes you more unbearable. Please feel free to take this personally. You should have been the Mockingjay. No one would have had to feed you the lines, I say. True, but no one likes me, she tells me. They trusted you, though, to get me out, I remind her. And they're afraid of you. Here, maybe. In the capital, you're the one they're scared of now. Gail appears in the doorway, and Joanna neatly unhooks herself and reattaches me to the morphling drip. Your cousin's not afraid of me, she says confidentially. She scoots off my bed and crosses to the door, nudging Gail's leg with her hip as she passes him. Are you gorgeous? You can hear her laughter as she disappears down the hall. I raise my eyebrows at him, and he takes my hand. Terrified, he mouths. I laugh, but it turns into a wince. Easy. He strokes my face as the pain ebbs. You gotta stop running straight into trouble. I know, but someone blew up a mountain, I answer. Instead of pulling back, he leans in closer, searching my face. You think I'm heartless? I know you're not. But I won't tell you it's okay. Now he draws back, almost impatiently. Katniss, what difference is there, really, between crushing our enemy in a mine or blowing him out of the sky with one of Beatty's arrows? The result is the same. I don't know. We were under attack in eight, for one thing. The hospital was under attack. Yeah, and those hover planes came from two, he says. So, by taking them out, we prevented further attacks. But that kind of thinking, that... You could turn it into an argument for killing anyone at any time. You could justify sending kids into the Hunger Games to prevent the districts from getting out of line. I don't buy that, he tells me. I do, I reply. Must be those trips into the arena. Fine. We know how to disagree. We always have. Maybe it's good. Between you and me, 
We've got District 2 now. Really? For a moment, a feeling of triumph flares up inside me. Then I think about the people on the square. Was there fighting after I got shot? No, not much. The workers from the nut turned on the capital soldiers. The rebels just sat by and watched. Actually, the whole country just sat by and watched. Well, that's what they do best, I say. You'd think that losing a major organ would entitle you to lie around for a few weeks. But for some reason, my doctors want me up and moving almost immediately. Even with the morphling, the internal pain is severe for the first few days. Then it slacks off considerably. The soreness from the bruised ribs, however, promises to hang around for a while. I begin to resent Joanna dipping into my morphling supply, but I still let her take whatever she likes. Rumors of my death have been running rampant, so they send in a team to film me in my hospital bed. I show off my stitches and impressive bruising and congratulate the districts on their successful battle for unity. And then I warn the capital to expect us soon. As part of my rehabilitation, I take short walks above ground each day. One afternoon, Plutarch joins me and gives me an update on our current situation. Now that District 2 has allied with us, the rebels are taking a breather from the war to regroup. Fortifying supply lines, seeing to the wounded, reorganizing their troops. The capital, like 13 during the dark days, finds itself completely cut off from outside help, as it holds the threat of nuclear attack over its enemies. Unlike 13, the capital is not in a position to reinvent itself and become self-sufficient. The city might be able to scrape along for a while, says Plutarch. Certainly there are emergency supplies stockpiled, but the significant difference between 13 and the capital are the expectations of the populace. 13 was used to hardship, whereas in the capital, all they've known is Panem et Sokensis. What's that? I recognize Panem, of course, but the rest is nonsense. It's a saying from thousands of years ago written in a language called Latin, about a place called Rome, he explains. Panam et translates into bread and circuses. The, the writer was saying that in return for full bellies and entertainment, his people had given up their political responsibilities, and therefore, their power. I think about the capital, the excess of food, and the ultimate entertainment, the Hunger Games. So... That's what the districts are for? To provide the bread and circuses? Yeah. And as long as they kept rolling in, the capital could control its little empire. Right now, it can provide neither. At least at the standard the people are accustomed to, says Plutarch. We've got the food, and I'm about to orchestrate an entertainment propo that's sure to be popular. After all, everybody loves a wedding. I freeze in my tracks. Sick at the idea of what he's suggesting. Somehow staging some perverse wedding between Peta and me? I haven't been able to face that one-way glass since I've been back. And at my own request, I only get updates about Peta's condition from Haymitch. He speaks very little about it. Different techniques are being tried. There will never truly be a way to cure him. And now they want me to marry Peta for a propo? 
Plutarch rushes to reassure me. No, 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 Katniss. Not, not your wedding. Finnick and Annie's. All you need to do is show up and pretend to be happy for them. Well, that's one of the few things I won't have to pretend, Plutarch. I tell him. The next few days bring a flurry of activities as the event is planned. The differences between the capital and Thirteen are thrown into sharp relief by the event. When Coyne says wedding, she means two people signing a piece of paper and being assigned a new compartment. Plutarch means hundreds of people dressed in finery at a three-day celebration. It's amusing to watch them haggle over the details. Plutarch has to fight for every guest, every musical note. After Coyne vetoes a dinner, entertainment, and alcohol, Plutarch yells, What's the point of a prop if no one's having any fun? It's hard to put a game maker on a budget, but even a quiet celebration causes a stir in 13, where they seem to have no holidays at all. When it's announced that the children are wanted to sing District 4's wedding song, practically every kid shows up. There's no shortage of volunteers to make decorations. In the dining hall, people chat excitedly about the event. Maybe it's more than festivities. Maybe it's that the people are so starved for something good to happen that we all want to be a part of it. That would explain why, when Plutarch has a fit over what the bride will wear, I volunteer to take Annie back to my house in 12, where Cinna left a variety of evening clothes in a big storage closet downstairs. All the wedding gowns he designed for me went back to the capital, but there are some dresses I wore on the victory tour. I'm a little leery about being with Annie, since all I really know about her is that Finnick loves her and everyone thinks she's mad. On the hovercraft ride, I decide she's less mad than unstable. She laughs at odd places in the conversation or drops out of it distractedly. Those green eyes fixate on a point with such intensity you find yourself trying to make out what she sees in the empty air. Sometimes, for no reason, she presses both of her hands over her ears as if to block out a painful sound. All right. She's strange, but if Finnick loves her, that's a good enough reason for me. I got permission for my prep team to come along, so I'm relieved of having to make any fashion decisions. When I open the closet, we all fall silent because Sinna's presence is so strong in the flow of fabrics. And then Octavia drops to her knees, rubs the hem of a skirt against her cheek, and bursts into tears. It's been so long, she gasps, since I've seen anything pretty. Despite reservations on Coin's side that it's too extravagant, and on Plutarch's side that it's too drab, the wedding is a smash hit. The 300 lucky guests called from 13, and the many refugees wear their everyday clothes. The decorations are made from autumn foliage, the music is provided by a choir of children accompanied by the lone fiddler who made it out of 12 with his instrument. So, it's simple. Frugal by the capital standards. It doesn't matter because nothing can compete with the beauty of the couple. It isn't about their borrowed finery. Annie wears a green silk dress I wore in five. Finnick wears one of Peter's suits that they altered, although the clothes are striking. Who can look past the radiant faces of two people for whom this day was once a virtual impossibility? Dalton, the cattle guy from 10, conducts the ceremony because it's similar to one used in his district, but there are unique touches of District 4. A net woven from long grass that covers the couple during their vows, the touching of each other's lips with salt water, 
and the ancient wedding song which likens a marriage to a sea voyage. No. I don't have to pretend to be happy for them. After the kiss that seals the union, the cheers and a toast with apple cider, the fiddler strikes up a tune that turns every head from twelve. We may have been the smallest, poorest district in Pan Am, but we know how to dance. Nothing has been officially scheduled at this point, but Plutarch, who's calling the propo from the control room, must have his fingers crossed. Sure enough, Greasy Say grabs Gale by the arm and pulls him under the center of the floor and faces off with him. People pour in to join them, forming two long lines, and the dancing begins. I'm standing off to the side, clapping to the rhythm, when a bony hand pinches me above the elbow. Joanna scowls at me. Are you going to miss the chance to let Snow see you dancing? She's right. What could spell victory louder than a happy mockingjay twirling around to music? I find a prim in the crowd. Since winter evenings gave us a lot of time to practice, we're actually pretty good dancers. I brush off her concerns about my ribs and we take our places in the line. It hurts, but the satisfaction of having Snow watch me dance with my little sister reduces other feelings to dust. Dancing transforms us. We teach the steps to the District 13 guests, insist on a special number for the bride and groom, join hands and make a giant spinning circle where people show off their footwork. Nothing silly, joyful, or fun has happened in so long. This could go on all night if not for the last event planned on Plutarch's propo. One that I hadn't heard about, but then it was meant to be a surprise. Four people, we allowed a huge wedding cake from a side room. Most of the guests back up, making way for this rarity, this dazzling creation in blue-green, white-tipped icing waves swimming with fish and sailboats, seals and sea flowers. But I pushed my way through the crowd to confirm what I knew at first sight. As surely as the embroidery stitches in Annie's gown were done by Sinna's hand, the frosted flowers on this cake were done by Peta's. This may seem like a small thing, but it speaks volumes. Haymitch has been keeping a great deal from me. The boy I last saw, screaming his head off, trying to tear free of his restraints, could never have made this. Never have had the focus, kept his hands steady, designed something so perfect for Finnick and Annie. As if anticipating my reaction, Haymitch is at my side. Let's you and me have a talk, he says. Out in the hall, away from the cameras, I ask, What's happening to him? Hamid shakes his head. I don't know. None of us knows. Sometimes he's rational, and then, for no reason, it goes off again. Doing that cake was a kind of therapy. He's been working on it for days. Watching him, he seemed almost like before. So he's got the run of the place, I ask. The idea makes me nervous at about five different levels. Oh, no. He frosted under heavy guard. He's still under lock and key. But I've talked to him. Face to face, I ask. And he didn't go nuts? No. He's pretty angry with me, but for the right reasons. Not telling him about the rebel plot and what not. Hamish pauses a moment, as if deciding something. He says that he would like to see you. 
I'm on a frosting sailboat, tossed around by blue-green waves, the deck shifting beneath my feet. My palms press into the wall to steady myself. This wasn't part of the plan. I wrote Peter off in District 2, and then I was going to go to the capital, kill Snow, and get taken out myself. The gunshot was only a temporary setback. Never was I supposed to hear the words, he says he'd like to see you. But now that I have, there's no way to refuse. At midnight, I'm standing outside the door to his cell. Hospital room. We had to wait for Plutarch to finish getting his wedding footage, which, despite the lack of what he calls razzle-dazzle, he's pleased with. The best thing about the Capitol basically ignoring Twelve all these years is that you people still have a little spontaneity. The audience eats that up. Like when Peter announced he was in love with you, and you did that trick with the berries. It makes for good television. I wish I could meet with Peter privately, but the audience of doctors has assembled behind the one-way glass, clipboards ready, pens poised. When Hamish gives me the okay in my earpiece, I slowly open the door. Those blue eyes lock onto me instantly. He's got three restraints on each arm and a tube that can dispense a knockout drug just in case he loses control. He doesn't fight to free himself, though. Only observes me with the wary look of someone who still hasn't ruled out the possibility that he's in the presence of a mutt. I walk over until I'm standing about a yard from the bed. There's nothing to do with my hands, so I cross my arms protectively over my ribs before I speak. Hey. Hey, he responds. It's like his voice, almost his voice, except there's something new in it. An edge of suspicion and reproach. Hey, Mitch said that you wanted to talk to me, I say. Look at you, for starters. It's like he's waiting for me to transform into a hybrid, drooling wolf right before his eyes. He stares so long I find myself casting furtive glances at the one-way glass, hoping for some direction from Haymitch, but my earpiece stays silent. You're not very big, are you? Or particularly pretty? I know he's been through hell and back, and yet somehow the observation rubs me the wrong way. Well, you've looked better. Haymitch's advice to back off gets muffled by Peter's laughter. <laughs> not even remotely nice to say that to me after all I've been through. Yeah, we've all been through a lot. And you're the one known for being nice, not me. I'm doing everything wrong. I don't know why I feel so defensive. He's been tortured. He's been hijacked. What's wrong with me? Suddenly I think I might start screaming at him. I'm not even sure about what, so I decide to get out of there. Look, I don't feel so well. Maybe I'll drop by tomorrow. I've just reached the door when his voice stops me. Katniss, I remember about the bread. The bread. Our one moment of real connection before the Hunger Games. They showed you the tape of me talking about it, I say. No, 
is there a tape of you talking about it? Why didn't the couple use it against me? He asks. I made it the day that you were rescued, I answer. The pain in my chest wraps around my ribs like a vice. The dancing was a mistake. So, what do you remember? You. And the rain, he says softly. Digging around in our trash bins. Burning the bread. My mother hitting me. Taking the bread out for the pig, but giving it to you instead. That's it. That's what happened, I say. The next day after school, I wanted to thank you, but I didn't know how. You were outside at the end of the day. I tried to catch your eye. You looked away. And then... For some reason, I think you picked a dandelion. I nod. He does remember. I've never spoken about that moment aloud. I must have loved you a lot. You did? My voice catches and I pretend to cough. And did you love me? He asks. I keep my eyes on the tiled floor. Everyone says I did. Everyone says that's why Snow had you tortured. To break me. That's not an answer, he tells me. I don't know what to think when they show me some of the tapes. And that first arena, it looked like you tried to kill me with those tracker jacker. I was trying to kill you. All of you, I say. You had me treed. Later, there's a lot of kissing. Didn't seem very genuine on your part. Did you like kissing me? He asks. Sometimes, I admit. You know, people are watching us now. I know. What about Gail? He continues. My anger is returning. I don't care about his recovery. This isn't the business of the people behind the glass. He's not a bad kisser either, I say shortly. And that was okay with the both of us. You kissing the other? No. Wasn't okay with either of you. But I wasn't asking your permission, I tell him. Peter laughs again, coldly, dismissively. <laughs> well, you are a piece of work, aren't you? Haymage doesn't protest when I walk out. Down the hall through the beehive of compartments, find a warm pipe to hide behind in the laundry room. It takes a long time to get to the bottom of why I'm so upset, and when I do, it's almost too mortifying to admit. All these months of taking it for granted that Peter thought I was wonderful are over. Finally, he can see me for who I really am. Violent, distrustful, manipulative, deadly. And I hate him for it.
There we are, folks. Chapter 16. Tonight, still on the docket, chapters 17 and 18. So, our chatter break question. This joyous meeting between um, Finnick and Annie, uh, their wedding, uh, once again, an additionally joyous event, sharply contrasted to this meeting between Peta and Katniss. Peter's trying to find his way back. He, I think, is at that step that I talked about before, that step of how, you know, thinking that someone is a mutt when literally you've never thought anyone else is a mutt. You know, if you thought that, like, you know, 10% of the population or even 1% was like, yeah, there are just, like, mutts who, who look like people but they walk around, that'd be a different thing. But this idea that this has never been done before but somehow Katniss is this mutt created by the Capitol and embedded with the Rebellion to try and kill them all... Peter has reached this point where if you're living in the real world for long enough, that kind of delusion just can't hold up. It can't continue to exist if, if you are in your right mind. And he is now. And so he's trying to find his way back. He's still struggling with what is actually real, with how much of his feelings of, of deeply placed mistrust are real. But he's trying. He's trying to find his way back. And this meeting with Katniss is something that she didn't anticipate. Here now, he kind of, he, he wasn't supposed to see Katniss again, in Katniss's mind at least. She was supposed to go to two, not get shot, and then go to district, uh, go to, go to the capital, um, and then never leave. She was supposed to make sure that Snow le never left either, but she wasn't planning to come back. Not alive. And so now this moment that wasn't supposed to happen is happening. Our chatterbreak question is, is Peter going to find his way back? And if he is, how? All right. <laughs> Brief side note. Uh, you'll be seeing pictures of this over in Discord later today, I'm sure. But um, I am, I've, I've been hired to run a run some RPGs for a bachelor party. Um, next weekend, and so my current project is making a hundred tiny little cars. Because <laughs> my big showdown. Hey, if you're if you're going to be attending a bachelor party this weekend in Southern California, um, I guess it's a surprise, so you wouldn't know anyway. I don't know. The, the likelihood is darn near impossible. The, the thing that reminded me was I was using this big weight uh, to to hold things together while they were gluing for this project, um, and uh, that is that is what fell over. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Um, but uh, yeah, so I'm making like a hundred tiny little cars because I am making a big set piece for the end of the session, which is a drive-in movie theater. Um, there are going to be werewolves at a drive-in movie theater, and uh, <laughs> I'm pretty excited about it. So that's what's up. All right, let's talk about this chatterbreak question a little bit, and then we're going to roll on into our review. Um... Yeah, Hogwarts it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm, I'm building this whole drive-in movie theater. Um, it's uh, it's based on one that's like uh, about an hour away from me called uh, Mission Tiki. Uh, it's the Mission Tiki drive-in movie theater. And I'm going to tell you all right now, the the pictures online don't do it justice. I will, I'll show you sort of my vision for it uh, over on Discord later on. Once I've got it, once I've got it all built. It probably won't be done until pretty close to next weekend. Um, let's see. Uh, pretty spade talking about spleens. 
Hungry Tippy says, uh, in in I believe response to our chatterbreak question, which is, is PETA going to be able to come back from this? And if so, how? What are going to be the things that work? Um, but Hogwarts Tippy says, honestly, I think that PETA will make his way back. I'm kind of thinking that seeing Katniss and Gale together, maybe sharing a kiss or something, might jolt him out of it. Interesting. Interesting. Hogwarts Tippy continues and says, it only seems fitting that uh, it happens that way because Gale and PETA have been in competition the entire time. Interesting. An interesting little theory. All right. Let us continue. Um, a bit of review. Katniss is the Mockingjay. She has uh, been the face of this rebellion, which has now taken every single district, including District 2, the toughest nut to crack. Um, there was some violence, and Katniss was injured, uh, and unexpectedly ends up back in District 13. She was planning to just go kill Snow and not make it out of the capital alive, but she's back in 13 to recuperate. Um, and it's kind of good that she is, because there is a wedding in this last chapter. Uh, the wedding between, uh, let's see, Finnick O'Dare and Annie... Annie Castor? I don't remember her last name. Uh, Finnick and Annie are getting married. Katniss is terrified for a moment, thinking that this wedding is going to be her and Peta for some propo, but nope, it is a wedding between two people who could not possibly be more in love. Um, and it's, it's a beautiful event. Just the, the fact that... They, for so long, thought it would be impossible for them for them to get married. Um, just makes them all the happier, and they are delighted to be together. Um, and because there are so few celebrations in District 13, that enthusiasm radiates out to everyone. There are... There are uh, different preparations made for this thing. It's supposed to be a big celebration in Plutarch's mind, and then something pretty subdued in the mind of President Coyne of District 13, but they managed to sort of find their way to something in the middle, some kind of compromise. Um, and at the very end, the big finale surprise is a massive cake, a big old wedding cake, decorated, clearly, by PETA. Seems like maybe some things about PETA that Haymitch has not been telling Katniss. And, as they meet here at the end of the wedding, she realizes there is one big thing. PETA has requested to see her. This is a meeting that wasn't supposed to happen, like we talked about before our before my, my little Big Bang Theory. But, now Katniss goes to see him. It is not a happy reunion, by any means. Um... Peta is clearly still distrustful, um, doesn't try to attack her, but he is distrustful and kind of mean, frankly. Um, he talks about, you know, remembering certain things, not remembering certain things, but as Katniss goes to leave, because it just is kind of overwhelming for her, he mentions that he remembers the day with the bread. And after talking about it a little bit, it turns out he genuinely does remember it. Um, he goes back and uh, remembers some things that were never recorded on anything that no one else would have known about. Um, and he says, I must have loved you a lot, didn't I? Katniss says, yes. Um, and he asks Katniss, did you love me too? And she says, she's not quite sure, essentially. A tough thing to hear, but in the end... Peter kind of go, goes back over and says, you know, I, I remember a lot from 
Uh, I remember a lot that I, I don't think was changed in my mind. Moments on the train, etc. This perhaps wasn't what I thought it was at the time, even in my right mind. Chapter 17. Blindsided. That's how I feel when Hamage tells me in the hospital. I fly down the steps to command, mind racing a mile a minute, and burst right into a war meeting. What do you mean I'm not coming to the capital? I have to go. I'm the Mockingjay, I say. Coin barely looks up from her screen. And as the Mockingjay, your primary goal of unifying the districts against the capital has been achieved. Don't worry. If it goes well, we'll fly you in for the surrender. The surrender? That'll be too late. I'll miss all the fighting. You need me. I'm the best shot you've got, I shout. I don't usually brag about this, but at least it's close to being true. Gail's going. Gail has shown up for training every day, unless otherwise occupied by approved duties. We feel confident he can manage himself in the field, says Coyne. How many training sessions do you estimate you have attended? None. That's how many. Well, sometimes I was hunting, and I trained with BT down in Special Weaponry. It's not the same, Katniss, says Boggs. We all know you're smart and brave and a good shot, but we need soldiers in the field. You don't know the first thing about executing orders, and you're not exactly at your physical peak. That didn't matter when I was an eight, or two for that matter, I counter. You weren't originally authorized for combat in either case, says Plutarch, shooting me a look that signals I'm about to reveal too much. No, the bomber battle in eight and my intervention in two were spontaneous, rash, and definitely unauthorized. And both resulted in your injury, Boggs reminds me. Suddenly, I see myself through his eyes. A smallish, 17-year-old girl who can't quite catch her breath since her ribs haven't fully healed. Disheveled. Undisciplined. Recuperating. Not a soldier, but someone who needs to be looked after. But I have to go, I say. Why? asks Coin. I can't very well say so I can carry out my own personal vendetta against Snow. Or that the idea of remaining here in 13 with the latest version of Peta when Gale goes off to fight is unbearable. But I've got no shortage of reasons to want to fight in the capital. Because of 12. Because they destroyed my district. The president thinks about this for a moment. Considers me. Well, you've got three weeks. It's not long, but you can begin training. If the assignment board deems you fit, possibly your case will be reviewed. That's it. 
That's the most I can hope for. I guess it's my own fault. I did blow off my schedule every single day unless something suited me. It didn't seem like much of a priority, jogging around a field with a gun with so many other things going on. And now, I'm paying for my negligence. Back in the hospital, I find Joanna in the same circumstance and spitting mad. I tell her about what Coyne said. Maybe you can train too? Fine, I'll train, but I'm going to the stinking capital if I've got to kill a crew and fly there myself, says Joanna. Probably best not to bring that up in training, I say. But it's nice to know I've got to have a ride. Joanna grins, and I feel a slight but significant shift in our relationship. I don't know that we're actually friends, but possibly the word allies would be accurate. That's good. I'm going to need an ally. The next morning, when we report for training at 7.30, reality slaps me in the face. We've been funneled into a class of relative beginners, 14 or 15-year-olds, which seems a little insulting until it's obvious they're in far better condition than we are. Gail and the other people have already been chosen to go out into the capital are in a different, accelerated phase of training. After we stretch, which hurts, there's a couple of hours of strengthening exercises, which hurt, and a five-mile run, which kills. Even with Joanna's motivational insults driving me on, I have to drop out after a mile. It's my ribs, I explained to the trainer, a no-nonsense middle-aged woman we're supposed to address as Soldier York. They're still bruised. Well, I'll tell you, Soldier Everdeen, those are going to take up at least another month to heal on their own. I shake my head. I don't have a month. She looks me up and down. Doctors haven't offered you any kind of treatment. Is there a treatment? I ask. They said they had to mend naturally. Yeah, that's what they say. They can speed up the process if I recommend it. I warn you, though, it's not any fun. Please. I've, I've got to get to the capital, I say. Soldier York doesn't question this. She scribbles something on a pad and sends me directly to the capital. Nope. Nope. <laughs> That's it. You're going. <laughs> Soldier York doesn't question this. She scribbles something on a pad and sends me directly back to the hospital. I hesitate. I don't want to miss any more training. I'll be back for the afternoon session, I promise. She just purses her lips. Twenty-four needle jabs to my rib cage later, I'm flattened down in my hospital bed, gritting my teeth to keep from begging them to bring back my morphling drip. It's been by my bed so I can take a hit as needed. I haven't used it lately, but I kept it for Joanna's sake. Today, they tested my blood to make sure it was clean of the painkiller, as the mixture of the two drugs, the morphling and whatever set my ribs on fire, has dangerous side effects. They made it clear I would have a difficult couple of days but I told them to go ahead. It's a bad night in our room. Sleep's out of the question. I think I can actually smell the ring of flesh around my chest burning, and Joanna's fighting off withdrawal symptoms. Early on, when I apologize about cutting off her morphling supply, she waves it off, saying it had to happen anyway. But by three in the morning, I'm the target of every colorful bit of profanity District 7 has to offer. At dawn, she drags me out of bed, determined to get to training. 
I don't think I can do it, I confess. You can do it. We both can. We're victors, remember? We're the ones who can survive anything they throw at us. She snarls at me. She's a sick greenish color, shaking like a leaf. I get dressed. We must be victors to make it through the morning. I think I'm going to lose Joanna when I realize it's pouring outside. Her face turns ashen. She seems to have ceased breathing. It's just water. It won't kill us, I say. She clenches her jaw and stomps out into the mud. Rain drenches us as we work our bodies and then slog around the running course. I bail after a mile again and have to resist the temptation to take off my shirt so that the cold water can sizzle off my ribs. I force down my field lunch of soggy fish and beet stew. Joanna gets halfway through her bowl before it comes back up. In the afternoon, we learn to assemble our guns. I manage it, but Joanna can barely keep her hands steady enough to fit the parts together. When York's back is turned, I help her out. Even though the rain continues, the afternoon is an improvement because we're at the shooting range. At least, something I'm good at. It takes some adjusting from a bow to a gun, but at the end of the day, I've got the best score in my class. We're just inside the hospital doors when Joanna declares, This has to stop us living in the hospital. Everyone views us as patients. It's not a problem for me. I can move into our family compartment, but Joanna's never been assigned one. When she tries to get discharged from the hospital, they won't agree to let her live alone, even if she comes in for daily talks with the head doctor. I think they may have put two and two together about the morphling, and this only adds to their view that she's unstable. She won't be alone. I'm gonna room with her, I announce. There's some dissent, but Haymitch takes our part, and by bedtime, we've got a compartment across from Prim and my mother, who agrees to keep an eye on us. After I take a shower and Joanna sort of wipes herself down with a damp cloth, she makes a cursory inspection of the place. When she opens the drawer that holds my few possessions, she shuts it quickly. Sorry. I think how there's nothing in Joanna's drawer but her government-issued clothes. That she doesn't have one thing in the world to call her own. It's okay. You can look at my stuff if you want. Joanna unlatches my locket, studying the pictures of Gail, Prim, and my mother. She opens the silver parachute and pulls out the spile and slips it onto her pinky. <laughs> Makes me thirsty just looking at it. And then she finds the pearl that Peter gave me. Is this... Yeah, I say. Made it through somehow. I don't want to talk about Peter. One of the best things about training is it keeps me from thinking about him. Hey, Mitch says he's getting better, she says. Maybe. But he's changed. So have you. So have I, and Finnick, and Hamish, and Beatty. Don't get me started on Annie Cresta. The arena's messed us all up pretty good, wouldn't you say? Or do you still feel like the girl who volunteered for your sister? She asks me. No, I answer. That's the one thing I think my head doctor might be right about. There's no going back, so we might as well keep on with things. She neatly returns my keepsakes to my drawer and climbs into the bed across from me as the lights go out. You're not afraid I'll kill you tonight? <laughs> like I couldn't take you, I answer. 
And then we laugh, since both of our bodies are so wrecked, it would be a miracle if we can get up the next day. But we do. Each morning, we do. And by the end of the week, my ribs feel almost like new. And Joanna can assemble her rifle without any help. Soldier York gives the pair of us an approving nod as we knock off for the day. Fine job, soldiers! When we move out of hearing, Joanna mutters, I think winning the games was easier. But the look on her face says she's pleased. In fact, we are almost in good spirits when we go to the dining hall, where Gail's waiting to eat with me. Receiving a giant serving of beef stew doesn't hurt my mood either. First shipments of food arrived this morning, Greasy Say tells me. That's real beef from District 10, not any of your wild dog. Oh, I don't remember you turning it down, Gail tosses her way. We join a group that includes Deli, Annie, and Finnick. It's something to see Finnick's transformation since his marriage. His earlier incarnations, the decadent capital heartthrob I met before the Quell, the enigmatic ally in the arena, the broken young man who tried to help me hold it together, these have been replaced by someone who radiates life. Finnick's real charms are self-effacing humor and an easygoing nature, and they're on display for the first time. He never lets go of Annie's hand. Not when they walk, not when they eat. I doubt he ever plans to. She's lost in a daze of happiness. There are still moments when you can tell something slips in her brain and another world blinds her to us. But a few words from Finnick call her back. Deli, who I've known since I was little but never gave much thought to, has grown in my estimation. She was told what Peter said to me that night after the wedding, but she's not a gossip. Hamish says she's the best defender I have when Peter goes off on some kind of tear about me, always taking my side, blaming his negative perceptions on the Capitol's torture. She's got more influence on him than any of the others do, because he really knows her. Anyway, even if she's sugarcoating my good points, I appreciate it. Frankly, I could use a little sugarcoating. I'm starving, and the stew is so delicious. Beef, potatoes, turnips, and onions, and a thick gravy. I've got to force myself to slow down. All around the dining hall, you can feel the rejuvenating effect that a good meal can bring on. The way it can make people kinder, funnier, and more optimistic, and remind them it's not a mistake to go on living. It's better than any medicine. So I try to make it last and join in the conversation. Sop up the gravy on my bread and nibble on it as I listen to Finnick telling some ridiculous story about a sea turtle swimming off with his hat. I laugh before I realize he's standing there. Directly across the table. Behind the empty seat next to Joanna. Watching me. I choke momentarily as the gravy bread sticks in my throat. Peter, says Deli. It's so nice to see you out and about. Two large guards stand behind him. He holds his tray awkwardly, balanced on his fingertips since his wrists are shackled in a short chain between them. What's with the fancy bracelets? says Joanna. I'm not quite trustworthy yet, says Peter. I can't even sit here without your permission. He indicates the guards with his head. Sure, he can sit here. We're old friends, says Joanna, patting the space beside her. 
The guards nod, and Peter takes a seat. Peter and I had adjoining cells in the capital. We're very familiar with each other's screams. Annie, who's on Joanna's other side, does that thing where she covers her ears and exits reality. Finnick shoots Joanna an angry look, and his arm encircles Annie. What? My doctor says I'm not supposed to censor my thoughts. It's part of my therapy, replies Joanna. The life has gone out of our little party. Finnick murmurs things to Annie until she slowly removes her hands. And there's a long silence while people pretend to eat. Annie, says Delly brightly, did you know it was Peter who decorated your wedding cake? Back at home, his family ran the bakery, and he did all the icing. Annie cautiously looks across Joanna. Thank you, Peter. It was beautiful. My pleasure, Annie, says Peter. And I hear that old note of gentleness in his voice that I thought was gone forever. Not that it's directed at me, but still. If we're going to fit in that walk, we better go, Finnick tells her. He arranges both of their trays so that he can carry them in one hand while holding tightly to her with the other. It's good seeing you, Peter. You'd be nice to our Finnick, or I might try and take it away from you. It could be a joke if the tone wasn't so cold. Everything it conveys is wrong. The open distrust of Finnick, the implication that Peter has his eye on Annie, that Annie could desert Finnick, that I don't even exist. <laughs> oh, Peter, says Finnick lightly, don't make me sorry I restarted your heart. He leads Annie away after giving me a concerned glance. When they're gone, Delly says in a reproachful voice, He did save your life, Peter, more than once. For her? He gives me a brief nod. Oh, the rebellion, not for me. I don't owe him anything. I shouldn't rise to the bait, but I do. Maybe not. But Mags is dead and you're still here. That should count for something. Yeah, a lot of things should count for something that doesn't seem to. Katniss. I've got some memories I can't make sense of, and I don't think the capital touched them. A lot of nights on the train, for instance, he says. Again, the implications. That more happened on the train than did. That what did happen, those nights I only kept my sanity because his arms were around me, no longer matters. Everything a lie. Everything a way of misusing him. Peter makes a little gesture with his spoon, connecting Gale and me. So, are you two officially a couple now, or are they still dragging out the star-crossed lover thing? Still dragging, says Joanna. Spasms cause Peter's hands to tighten into fists and then splay out in a bizarre fashion. Is it all he can do to keep them from my neck? I can feel the tension in Gale's muscles next to me. I fear an altercation, but Gale simply says... I wouldn't have believed it if I hadn't seen it myself. What's that? asks Peter. You, Gail answers. You're going to have to be a little bit more specific, says Peter. What about me? That they've replaced you with the evil mutt version of yourself, says Joanna. Gail finishes his milk. Are you done? he asks me. 
I rise, and we cross to drop off our trays. At the door, an old man stops me because I'm still clutching the rest of my gravy bread in my hand. Something in my expression, or maybe the fact that I've made no attempt to conceal it, makes him go easy on me. He lets me stuff the bread in my mouth and move on. Gail and I are almost in my compartment when he speaks again. <laughs> I didn't expect that. I told you he hated me, I say. It's the way that he hates you. It feels so... familiar. I used to feel like that, he admits. When I'd watch you kissing him on screen, only I knew I wasn't being entirely fair. He can't see that. We reach my door. Maybe you're just teasing me what I really am. I gotta go get some sleep. Gail catches my arm before I can disappear. So that's what you're thinking now. I shrug. Katniss, as your oldest friend, believe me when I say, he's not seeing you as you really are. He kisses my cheek and goes. I sit on my bed, trying to stuff information about my military tactic books into my head while memories of my nights with Peta on the train distract me. After about twenty minutes, Joanna comes in and throws herself across the foot of the bed. You missed the best part. Deli lost her temper at Peta over how he treated you. She got very squeaky. It was like someone stabbing a mouse with a fork repeatedly. The whole dining hall was riveted. What did Peter do? I asked. He started arguing with himself like he was two people. The guards had to take him away. On the good side, no one seemed to notice I finished his stew. Joanna rubs her hand over her protruding belly. I look at the layer of grime under her fingernails. I wonder if the people in Seven ever bathe. We spend a couple of hours quizzing each other on military terms. I visit my mother and Prim for a while. When I'm back in my compartment, showered, staring into the darkness, I finally ask. Joanna, could you really hear him screaming? That was part of it, she says. Like the Jabberjays in the arena. Only it was real, and it didn't stop after an hour. Tick-tock. Tick-tock, I whisper back. Roses, wolf mutts, tributes, frosted dolphins, friends, mocking jays, stylists, me. Everything screams in my dreams tonight. Well, my good people, that is the end of our... Th uh, th 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 excuse me. Excuse me. <laughs> that is the end of our second of three chapters this evening. Ooh, this is what I get. I was running so behind today, y'all have no idea. This whole week has been just a mess of me being behind on stuff. And I'm not really sure why. I feel like I should have enough time in the day, but I guess I've always felt that way. Like, I should have enough time in the day, and I don't. So... 
everyone. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll be back in five minutes. I'll have the timer up on the screen. You should be able to see that if you're here on Twitch. Uh, Alina, hello. Good to have you here. Welcome to the stream. Uh, you may have ducked out already, but it's been good to see you. Uh, good to have you stop in. And all you good folks who have been here, thank you so very much. I will see you in five minutes. <laughs> Let me leave you with a quick Chatterbrick question. We'll talk about that when we come back, and then we'll do a little bit of review. And then we're going to launch into Chapter 18, which I will remind you is the final chapter of Part 2. That means next week we're, we're starting the third and final part of this book. And I guess the ninth and final part of this series. <laughs> Ooh, boy. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> Thank you all so much for being here. Chatter break question is... Pete is back in the mix now. He can sit at a table with Katniss without totally freaking out. Um, we talked a little bit about what might bring... What might bring Pete back here. Um... But I want to bounce back and talk about Katniss for a moment. We've seen how Peeta feels about her right now. He's in an altered state, but there are some things that haven't really been altered that he feels pretty darkly about. And then there's Gale, who says that all this, all this nastiness from Peeta, he's not seeing you how you actually are. Let's talk about who Katniss actually is. Is Katniss feeling correctly about herself right now? Are the things that she feels about herself true and real? That's our chatterbreak question. Katniss's own self-analysis. Let's chat about it. I'll see y'all in five minutes. Bye-bye. are back. Hello, good folks. My name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories, for any of you who are not aware. We are officially back. We're going to be reading uh, our next chapter, our next and final chapter of the evening. Um, and then after that, I think we're going to hit up some uh, some sound bites, because we're definitely due for them, don't you know? Don't you know, don't you know? Um, uh, I guess a couple of uh, housekeeping things. I will remind you, good folks, that uh, on... Um, Oh, let's see. Uh, this weekend, the vote is ending. So head on over to the Discord. You can find that link at any time. Linktree slash sidecar stories. Use the links command in chat. Um, uh, if you are interested in voting on our next series that we're going to be reading here on Thursdays, please head on over there and vote because this is going to be the last weekend for it. Um, additionally, we had a little, I'm calling them coda episodes. Um, wherein we don't actually play through our campaign uh, for our Wednesday show. But instead, I take some time and just get people kind of caught up. Um, I allow anybody who is interested to ask questions about the campaign or the world, uh, the lore, that kind of stuff, or even the system that we're using, um, just to kind of get people caught up. So if you're interested in that campaign, but you haven't found a good place to like sink your teeth into it, um, this Coda episode might be a good spot. So go ahead and check that out here on Twitch. And if I can get it edited into something decent, uh, I'll be adding that to my normal feed over on Spotify and YouTube as well. So go ahead and check that out. Um, let's see. There was one other thing I wanted to chat about. Do not remember precisely what it was. Um, I'm not sure. Maybe I'll remember it later. <laughs> Maybe I'll figure it out at some point. Who knows? Who knows how my mind shall work for me today? 
or rather how it will refuse to work for me today. Um, folks, I hope you're excited. Let's talk a bit of review. Katniss is the Mockingjay. The districts are seized. There is only the capital between the rebellion and victory. As we approach chapter 18, chapters uh, uh, 16 and 17, Pete is kind of coming out of it, but he's still not happy. He's sort of realizing um, that, uh, you know, it's basically he has seen the way in which his relationship with Katniss kind of progressed, but he's seeing it without the love that he feels for her and with a considerable amount of kind of bitterness and paranoia and fear about her. Um, and as such, you know, he's starting to see like real things, but he's definitely seeing them through a different lens than he ever saw before. Um, he even says, I must have loved you a lot uh, at that point. And when Katniss can't tell him in return that she loved him too, it doesn't go great. The plan is they're going to send teams into the capital next, and Katniss has been told she cannot join that unless she has been approved. She didn't attend any of her trainings for the, the past months, and so it's not shocking that when they need soldiers, she is not considered on that list. Um, so, she and Joanna Mason, who both need the training, uh, have been attending training every day in hopes that at the end of this three weeks, they can be approved to join the soldiers heading into the capital. That's where we're at. We had a bit of a chatter break question. Um, is Katniss giving herself a kind of a fair shake here? Is Are the things that she is, I'll put it in quotes, realizing about herself, are these things true? Are they real? Are they authentic and legitimate? And uh, you good folks, I want to remind you all, if you've got anything you want to talk about, um, you can definitely sort of guide and almost always do guide um, the Chatterbreak questions that come up here. So I look to chat as I'm sort of uh, formulating the Chatterbreak questions. If you've got something you want to talk about, please go ahead and at any point during the chapter, throw it in. I don't really respond to chat very much during the chapter because I want to keep a, a kind of a clean read through for those people who are just listening um, kind of podcast style. But if you've got something you want to talk about, pop it into chat. I would love to talk about these things uh, at any point while you're watching. Um, Hogwarts Hippie says, I think what Katniss is feeling about herself feels true and real for her in these difficult moments. I imagine that she feels torn between the relationship she previous had, previously had with PETA and the absence of the relationship now, while also understanding that she has feelings for Gale. Because Katniss still cares deeply about PETA, I think his view of her holds a lot of weight, even after finding out that his mind was hijacked. And now that PETA's back in the game, I imagine it hurts. It does hurt. Um, and, and frankly, even down to just this, there are two big moments in these, these last couple of, of chapters where they've talked about just how little sort of joy and pleasure and, you know, just like how little serotonin they are experiencing, right? Um, talking about the wedding, how important that is to everyone. Uh, just the fact that any little, bit, any little bit of joy, everyone wants to get their hands on it because no one has really felt anything like that for a while here. And then there's this, you know, just having some some really good food. Same thing. Katniss mentions that it really brings up people's spirits. And so I think we can imagine, uh, I, I, I think Hogwarts Hippie's first line here, I think what Katniss is feeling about herself feels true and real for her in these difficult moments. These moments are really difficult. 
She's had a few wins, but each win has cost her so much, like, literal physical pain. You know, every time <laughs> something great happens, she ends up in the hospital, right? Every time she succeeds at something, she she caps off that success with a nice toast of Morphling. Um, it's tough. And, uh, and so, like, in these difficult times when she's had so little joy herself, even her experiences of, like, the wedding, for instance, are tainted by the fact that the moment that she maybe could have viewed in the future you know she she thought about it how maybe it wouldn't be horrifying to spend a life with Peta. it would be horrifying to her to have children to that she would have to send into the arena but thinking about Peta, you know that that was okay for her but now that is so poisoned that experience of just a happy relationship is so poisoned to her because of everything that's going on yet so much of her life is difficult moments and Difficult moments will absolutely shape the way that you feel about just about everything. I know that's true for me, um, and uh, I take a bit of medication to to, uh, to kind of help to qualify that because, um, at least where I'm at, I, I I think where where I end up is uh, my brain is not able to possibly, excuse me, my brain is not able to properly um, kind of intake or process uh, serotonin, and so. Um, I can experience the bad things as most people experience bad things, but I don't really experience good things. And I've thought about this a lot. I've reflected on it a lot, you know, tried to try to sort of piece together my feelings versus the reality uh, in retrospect, um, especially over the past, like, kind of 2021 and 2020 were really, really tough. Um, and uh, only in 2022 here have I started to get back on my medications after a few years off. But... Um, yeah, feeling so much, feeling so many of the difficulties without being able to experience any of the pleasures, that is, I mean, that's really challenging. That is not a state that humans are necessarily designed to function particularly well in. Let me see. Let me see. Uh, Luis simply says, deep breath and your memory could kick in. Yeah, there's that hope that, you know, maybe she can take a deep breath and kind of come back from this. Orly Rose says, I think we all have darkness and light and the capacity for both, and love is complicated. So the conflict that she feels over the feelings she has for both, coupled with the fact that each of her relationships has a basis of trauma bonds, which will further complicate things, I think she has a strong personal code, and this pushes her, uh, this pulls her in many directions. And she swore she wouldn't ever fall in love or marry on top of that. There's a lot. There's a lot. And we, we've talked about this before. We've talked about kind of uh, those rules. That, that's one of the ways in which I kind of assess not just characters from literature, but also people in life. I think people have sort of these fundamental rules, and these fundamental rules are virtually never in perfect balance with one another. Um, these people that we, we, would, we would call, I guess, in RPG terms, like lawful, these lawful people who have a strict code that they follow, they're very rare. I think lots of people have strong core rules, but the ways in which they prioritize them can change drastically with circumstances and just with time. And so um, I think uh, some of the things that we've talked about with Katniss, some of her prime rules for herself, ones that she may or may not know that she has for herself. Um, other people, I think you could call them values or, or motivations, you know, lots of different names for similar ideas here. Uh, but her strong personal code uh, does really pull her in a lot of directions. I think you're absolutely right about that, Orly Rose. And uh, being pulled in all those directions, I think it's a great mental stress, and certainly can be could, could be contributing to Katniss's general feeling of I'm kind of trash, because it seems like that's where she's at with herself. 
Let's see if she can slough that off in the final part of part, uh, final chapter of part two of the final book of this series. Chapter 18. I throw myself into training with a vengeance. Eat, live, and breathe the workouts, drills, weapons practice, lectures on tactics. A handful of us are moved into an additional class that gives me hope I may be a contender for the actual war. The soldiers simply call it the block. The tattoo on my arm lists it as the SSC, short for Simulated Street Combat. Deep in 13, they've built an artificial capital city block. The instructor breaks us into squads of eight, and we attempt to carry out missions. Gaining a position, destroying a target, searching a home, as if we were really fighting our way through the capital. The thing's rigged so that everything that can go wrong does. A false step triggers a landmine. A sniper appears on a rooftop. Your gun jams. A crying child leads you into an ambush. The squadron leader, who's just a voice in the program, gets hit by a mortar, and you have to figure out what to do without orders. Part of you knows it's fake, and that they're not going to kill you. If you set off a landmine, you hear the explosion, and you have to pretend to fall over dead. But in other ways, it feels pretty real in there. The enemy soldiers dressed in peacekeepers' uniforms, the confusions of a smoke bomb. They even gas us. Joanna and I are the only ones who get our masks on in time. The rest of our squad gets knocked out for ten minutes. And the supposedly harmless gas I took a few lungfuls of gives me a wicked headache for the rest of the day. Cressida and her crew tape Joanna and me on the firing range. I know Gale and Finnick are being filmed as well. It's all part of a new Propo series to show the rebels preparing for the capital invasion. On the whole, things are going pretty well. Then Peta starts showing up for our morning workouts. The manacles are off, but he's still constantly accompanied by a pair of guards. After lunch, I see him across the field, drilling with a group of beginners. I don't know what they're thinking. If a spat with Deli can reduce him to arguing with himself, he's got no business learning how to assemble a gun. When I confront Plutarch, he assures me that it's all for the camera. They've got footage of Annie getting married and Joanna hitting targets, but all of Pan Am is wondering about Peta. They need to see that he's fighting for the rebels, not for Snow. And maybe... If they could just get a couple of shots of the two of us, not kissing necessarily, just looking happy, being back together. I walk away from the conversation right then. That is not going to happen. In my rare moments of downtime, I anxiously watch the preparations for the invasions. See equipment and provisions readied, divisions assembled. You can tell when someone's received orders because they're given a very short haircut. The mark of a person going into battle. There is much talk of the opening offensive, which will be to secure the train tunnels that feed up into the capital. Just a few days before the first troops are to move out, York unexpectedly tells Joanna and me she's recommended us for the exam, and we're to report immediately. There are four parts. An obstacle course that assesses your physical condition, a written tactics exam, 
a test of weapons proficiency, and a simulated combat situation in the block. I don't even have time to get nervous for the first three and do well, but there's a backlog for the block. Some kind of technical bug they're working out. A group of us exchanges information. This much seems true. You go through alone. There's no predicting what situation he'll be thrown into. One boy says, under his breath, that he's heard it's designed to target each individual's weakness. What's my weakness? That's a door I don't even want to open. But I find a quiet spot and try to assess what that might be. The length of the list depresses me. Lack of physical brute force, a bare minimum of training, and somehow my standout status as the Mockingjay doesn't seem to be an advantage in a situation where they're trying to get us to blend into a pack. They can nail me to the wall on any number of things. Joanna's called three ahead of me, and I give her a nod of encouragement. I wish I'd been at the top of the list, because now I'm really overthinking the whole thing. By the time my name is called, I don't know what my strategy should be. Fortunately... Once I'm in the block, a certain amount of training does kick in. It's an ambush situation. Peacekeepers appear almost instantly, and I have to make my way to a rendezvous point to meet up with my scattered squad. I slowly navigate the street, taking out peacekeepers as I go. Two on the rooftop to my left, another in the doorway up ahead. It's challenging, but not as hard as I was expecting. There's a nagging feeling that if it's too simple, I must be missing the point. I'm within a couple of buildings of my goal when things begin to heat up. A half-dozen peacekeepers come charging around the corner. They will outgun me, but I notice something. A drum of gasoline lying carelessly in the gutter. That's it. My test. To perceive that blowing up the drum would be the only way to achieve my mission. Just as I step out to do it, my squadron leader, who's been fairly useless to this point, quietly orders me to hit the ground. Every instinct I have screams for me to ignore the advice, to pull the trigger, to blow the peacekeeper sky high. And suddenly, I realize what the military will think my biggest weakness is. From my first moment in the games, when I ran for that orange backpack, to the firefight in eight, to my impulsive race across the square in two, I cannot take orders. I smack into the ground so hard and fast I'll be picking gravel out of my chin for a week. Someone else blows the gas tank. The peacekeepers die. I make my rendezvous point. When I exit the block on the far side, a soldier congratulates me, stamps my hand with a squad number 451, and tells me to report to command. Almost giddy with success, I run through the halls, skidding around corners, bounding down the steps because the elevator's too slow. I bang into the room before the oddity of the situation dawns on me. I shouldn't be in command, I should be getting my hair buzzed. The people around the table aren't freshly minted soldiers, but the ones calling the shots. Boggs smiles and shakes his head when he sees me. Let's see it. Unsure now, I hold out my stamped hand. Here with me. It's a special unit of sharpshooters. Join your squad. He nods over at a group line in the wall. Gale. Fennec. Five others I don't know. My squad. I'm not only in, I get to work under bogs. With my friends, I force myself to take calm, soldierly steps to join them instead of jumping up and down. We must be important, too, because we're in command that it has nothing to do with a certain Mockingjay. Plutarch stands over a wide, flat panel in the center of the table. 
He's explaining something about the nature of what we will encounter in the capital. I'm thinking that this is a terrible presentation, because even on tiptoe, I can't see what's on the panel, until he hits a button. A holographic image of a block in the capital projects into the air. This, for example, is the area surrounding one of the Peacekeeper's barracks. Not unimportant, but not the most crucial of targets, and yet... Look. Plutarch enters some sort of code on a keyboard, and lights begin to flash. They're in an assortment of colors and blink at different speeds. Each light is called a pod. It represents a different obstacle, the nature of which could be anything from a bomb to a band of mutts. Make no mistake, whatever it contains is designed to either trap you or kill you. Some have been in place for years, since the dark days. Others have been developed since. To be honest, I created a fair number myself. This program, which one of our people absconded with when we left the capital, is our most recent information. They don't know we have it yet. But even so, it's likely that new pods will have been activated in the last few months. This is what you will have to face. I'm unaware that my feet are moving to the table until I'm inches from the holograph. My hand reaches in and cups a rapidly blinking green light. Someone joins me, his body tense. Finnick, of course, because only a victor could see what I see so immediately. The arena, laced with pods controlled by game makers. Finnick's fingers caress a steady red glow over a doorway. Ladies and gentlemen, his voice is quiet, but mine rings through the room. Let the 76th Hunger Games begin. <laughs> I laugh quickly before anyone has time to register what lies beneath the words I've just uttered. Before eyebrows are raised, objections are uttered, two and two are put together, and the solution is that I should be kept as far away from the capital as possible. Because an angry, independently thinking victor with a layer of psychological scar tissue too thick to penetrate is maybe the last person you want on your squad. I don't even know why you bothered training Finnick and I, Plutarch. Yeah, we're already the best equipped soldiers you've got, the two of us, Finnick adds cockily. Do not think that the fact escapes me, he says with an impatient wave. Now back in line, soldiers O'Dare and Everdeen. I've got a presentation to finish. We retreat to our places, ignoring the questioning looks thrown our way. I adopt an attitude of extreme concentration as Plutarch continues, nodding my head here and there, shifting my position to get a better look, all the while telling myself to hang on until I can get to the woods and scream, or curse, or cry, or maybe all three at once. If this was a test, Finnick and I both pass it. When Plutarch finishes and the meeting's adjourned, I've got a bad moment when I learn there's a special order for me. But it's merely that I skip the military haircut because they would like the Mockingjay to look as much like the girl in the arena as possible at the anticipated surrender. For the cameras, you know. I shrug to communicate that my hair's length is a matter of complete indifference to me. They dismiss me without further comment. Finnick and I gravitate toward one another in the hallway. <sighs> what will I tell Annie? He says under his breath. Nothing, I answer. As will my mother and sister will be hearing from me. 
bad enough that we know we're headed back into a fully equipped arena. No use dropping it on our loved ones. <laughs> if she sees that holograph, he begins. She won't. It's classified information. It must be, I say. Anyway, it's not like in actual games. Any number of people will survive. We're just overreacting because, well, you know why. You still want to go, don't you? Of course. I want to destroy snow as much as you do, he says. It won't be like the others, I say firmly, trying to convince myself as well. Then the real beauty of the situation dawns on me. This time, snow is going to be a player too. Before we can continue, Hamish appears. He wasn't at the meeting, isn't thinking of arenas, but something else. Joanna is back in the hospital! I assumed Joanna was fine, had passed her exam, but simply wasn't assigned to a sharpshooter's unit. She's wicked throwing an axe, but about average with a gun. Is she hurt? What happened? It was while she was on the block. They tried to ferret out a soldier's potential weaknesses. So they flooded the street, says Hamish. This doesn't help. Joanna can swim. At least I seem to remember her swimming around some in the quarter quell. Not like Finnick, of course, but none of us are like Finnick. So? That's how they tortured her in the capital. Soaked her and then used electric shocks, says Hamish. In the block she had some sort of flashback. Panicked, didn't know where she was. She's back under sedation. Finnick and I just stand there, as if we've lost the ability to respond. I think of the way that Joanna never showers, how she forced herself into the rain like it was acid that day. I had attributed her misery to the morphine withdrawal. You two should go and see her. You're as close to friends as she's got, says Hamish. That makes the whole thing worse. I don't really know what's between Joanna and Finnick, but I hardly know her. No family, no friends, not so much as a token from Seven to set beside her regulation clothes in her anonymous drawer. Nothing. I better go tell Plutarch he won't be happy, Hamish continues. He wants as many victors as possible for the cameras to follow to the capital. Thinks that it makes for better television. Are you and Beatty going? I ask. As many young and attractive victors as possible, Hamish corrects himself. So, no, we'll be here. Finnick goes directly down to see Joanna, but I linger outside a few minutes until Boggs comes out. He's my commander now, so I guess he's the one to ask for any special favors. When I tell him what I want to do, he writes me a pass so I can go to the woods during reflection provided I stay within sight of the guards. I run to my compartment, thinking to use the parachute, but it's so full of ugly memories. Instead, I go across the hall and take one of the white cotton bandages I brought from Twelve. Square, sturdy, just the thing. In the woods, I find a pine tree and strip a handful of fragrant needles from the boughs. After making a neat pile in the middle of the bandage, I gather up the sides, give them a twist, and tie them tightly with a length of vine making an apple-sized bundle. At the hospital room door, I watch Joanna for a moment. 
realized that most of her ferocity is in her abrasive attitude. Stripped of that, as she is now, there's only a slight young woman, her wide-set eyes fighting to stay awake against the power of the drugs, terrified of what sleep will bring. I cross to her and hold out the bundle. What's that? She says hoarsely. Damp edges of her hair form little spikes on her forehead. I made it for you. Something to put in your drawer. I place it in her hands. Smell it. She lifts the bundle to her nose and takes a tentative sniff. It smells like home. Tears flood her eyes. That's what I was hoping. You being from seven and all. Remember when we met? You were a tree. Well, briefly. Suddenly she has my wrist in an iron grip. You have to kill him, Katniss. Don't worry. I resist the temptation to wrench my arm free. Swear it. I'm something that you care about, she hisses. I swear it. On my life. But she doesn't let go of my arm. On your family's life, she insists. On my family's life, I repeat. I guess my concern for my own survival isn't compelling enough. She lets go and I rub my wrist. Why do you think I'm going anyway, brainless? That makes her smile a little. I just needed to hear it. She presses the bundle of pine needles to her nose and closes her eyes. The remaining days go by in a whirl. After a brief workout each morning, my squad's on the shooting range full-time in training. I practice mostly with a gun, but they reserve an hour a day for specialty weapons, which means I get to use my Mockingjay bow. Gale, his heavily militarized one. The Trident BD designed for Finnick has a lot of special features, but the most remarkable is that he can throw it, press a button on a metal cuff on his wrist, and return it to his hand without chasing it down. Sometimes we shoot at peacekeeper dummies to become familiar with the weaknesses in their protective gear, the chinks in their armor, so to speak. If you hit flesh, you're rewarded with a burst of fake blood. Our dummies are soaked in red. It's reassuring to see just how high the overall level of accuracy is in our group. Along with Finnick and Gale, the squad includes five soldiers from 13. Jackson, a middle-aged woman whose Boggs is second in command, looks kind of sluggish, but can hit things the rest of us can't even see without a scope. Farsighted, she says. There's a pair of sisters in their 20s named League. We call them League One and League Two for clarity, who are so similar in uniform we can't tell them apart until I notice that League One has weird yellow flecks in her eyes. Two older guys, Mitchell and Holmes, never say much, but can shoot the dust off your boots at 50 yards. I see other squads that are also quite good, but I don't fully understand our status until morning when Plutarch joins us. Squad 451, you've been selected for a special mission, he begins. I bite the inside of my lip, hoping against hope that it's to assassinate Snow. We have numerous sharpshooters, but rather a dearth of camera crews. Therefore, we've handpicked the eight of you to be what we will call our Star Squad. You will be the on-screen faces of the invasion. Disappointment, shock, and then anger run through the group. What you're saying is we won't be in actual combat, snaps Gale. 
You will be in combat, but perhaps not always on the front line. If one can even isolate a front line in this type of war, says Plutarch. None of us wants that. Phoenix's remark is followed by a general rumble of assent, but I stay silent. We're going to fight. You're going to be as useful to the war effort as possible, Plutarch says. And it's been decided that you are of most value on television. Just look at the effect that Katniss had running around in that Mockingjay suit. Turn the whole rebellion around. Do you notice how she's the only one not complaining? It's because she understands the power of that screen. Actually, Katniss isn't complaining because she's got no intention of staying with the Star Squad. But she recognizes the necessity of getting to the capital before carrying out any plan. Still, to be too compliant may arouse suspicion as well. But it's not all pretend, is it? I ask. That'd be a waste of talent. Don't worry, Plutarch tells me. You'll have plenty of real targets to hit, but don't get blown up. I've got enough of my plate without having to replace you. Now get to the capital and put on a good show. The morning we ship out, I say goodbye to my family. I haven't told them how much the capital's defenses mirror the weapons in the arena, but my going off to war is awful enough on its own. My mother holds me tightly for a long time. I feel tears on her cheek, something she suppressed when I was slated for the games. Don't worry, I'll be perfectly safe. I'm, I'm not even a real soldier. Just one of Plutarch's televised puppets, I reassure her. Prim walks me as far as the hospital doors. How do you feel? Better, knowing that you're somewhere snow can't reach you, I say. Next time we see each other, we'll be free of him says Prim firmly. Then she throws her arms around my neck. Be careful. I consider saying a final goodbye to Peta and decide it would only be bad for both of us. But I do slip the pearl into the pocket of my uniform, a token of the boy with the bread. A hovercraft takes us to, of all places, 12, where a makeshift transportation area has been set up outside the fire zone. No luxury trains this time, but a cargo car packed to the limit with soldiers in their dark gray uniforms, sleeping with their heads on their packs. After a couple of days' travel, we disembark inside one of the mountain tunnels leading to the capital and make the rest of the six-hour trek on foot, taking care to step only on a glowing green paint line that marks safe passage to the air above. We come out in the rebel encampment, a ten-block stretch outside the main train station where Peta and I made our previous arrivals. It's already crawling with soldiers. Squad 451 is assigned a spot to pitch its tents. This area has been secured for over a week. Rebels pushed out the peacekeepers, losing hundreds of lives in the process. The capital forces fell back and have regrouped further into the city. Between us lie the booby-trapped streets, empty and inviting. Each one will need to be swept of pods before we can advance. Mitchell asks about hoverplane bombings. We do feel very naked pitched out here in the open, but Boggs says that's not an issue. Most of the capital's air fleet was destroyed in two or during the invasion. If it has got any aircraft left, it's holding on to them. Probably so that Snow and his inner circle can make a last-minute escape to some presidential bunker somewhere if needed. Our own hover planes were grounded after the capital's anti-aircraft missiles decimated the first few waves. 
This war will be battled out on the streets with, hopefully, only superficial damage to the infrastructure and a minimum of human casualties. The rebels want the capital just as the capital wanted 13. After three days, much of Squad 451 risked deserting... Oh boy, oh boy. After three days, much of Squad 451 risks deserting out of boredom. Cressida and her team take shots of us firing. They tell us we're part of the disinformation team. If the rebels only shoot Plutarch's pods, it will take the capital about two minutes to realize that we've got the holograph. So there's a lot of time spent shattering things that don't matter, just to throw them off the scent. Mostly we just add to the piles of rainbow glass that have been blown off the exteriors of the candy-colored buildings. I suspect they are intercutting this footage with the destruction of significant capital targets. Once in a while, it seems a real sharpshooter services are needed. Eight hands go up, but Gale, Finnick, and I are never chosen. It's your own fault for being so camera-ready, I tell Gale. If looks could kill. I don't think they quite know what to do with the three of us, particularly me. I have my Mockingjay outfit with me, but I've only been taped in my uniform. Sometimes I use guns, sometimes they ask me to shoot with my bow and arrows. It's as if they don't want to entirely lose the Mockingjay, but they want to downgrade my role to foot soldier. Since I don't care, it's amusing rather than upsetting to imagine the arguments going on back in 13. While I outwardly express my discontent about our lack of any real participation, I'm busy with my own agenda. Each of us has a paper map of the capital. The city forms an almost perfect square. Lines divide the map into smaller squares, with letters along the top and numbers down the side to form a grid. I consume this, noting every intersection and side street, but it's remedial stuff. The commanders here are working off Plutarch's holograph. Each has a handheld contraption called a hollow that produces images like I saw on command. They can zoom into any area of the grid and see what pods await them. The hollow is an independent unit, a glorified map, really, since it can neither send nor receive signals, but it's far superior to my own paper version. A hollow is activated by a specific commander's voice giving his or her name. Once it's working, it responds to the other voices in the squadron, so if, say, Boggs were killed or severely disabled, someone could take over. If anyone in the squad repeats Nightlock three times in a row, the hollow will explode, blowing everything in a five-yard radius sky-high. This is for security reasons in the event of a capture. It's understood that we would all do this without hesitation. So, what I need to do is steal Boggs' activated hollow and clear out before he notices. I think it would be easier to steal his teeth. On the fourth morning, Soldier League number two hits a mislabeled pod. It doesn't unleash a swarm of mutation gnats, which the rebels are prepared for, but shoots out a sunburst of metal darts. One finds her brain. She's gone before the medics can reach her. Plutarch promises a speedy replacement. The following evening, the newest member of our squad arrives. With no manacles no guards. Strolling out of the train station with his guns swinging from the strap over his shoulder. There's shock, confusion, resistance, but 451 is stamped on the back of Peter's hand in fresh ink. Boggs relieves him of his weapon and goes to make a call. It won't matter, Peter tells the rest of us. The president assigned me herself. 
She decided the prop wars needed some heating up. Maybe they do. But if Coin sent Peter here, she's decided something else as well. That I'm of more use to her dead than alive. There we have it, folks. That is the end of our three chapters for today, but we have got some sound bites as well, don't we? Why, yes, we do. Uh, I think tonight, I'm gonna leave Elantris off for tonight, and I'm gonna, I'm, I might try to do those on Saturday, actually, because I've got a, a, a rare free Saturday. We shall see. We shall see about that one. But tonight, we do have um, let's see, we've got, uh, Marinver has got something that Marinver has written, so we're gonna, we're gonna jump in and read some of that, I think. I think that'd be pretty good. Um, folks, folks, it has been grand, as per usual. Couple of reminders, uh, the vote ends this week, so head on over to Discord, uh, linktree slash sidecar stories, um, head on over there. Uh, you can use the playlists command at any time as well if you want to find the other link tree, which has all of our various links to all sorts of stuff, because I know I've got everything spread all over hither and yon. Um, we have also got, on Wednesdays, we've got our uh, tabletop RPG campaign, which if you're wondering, um, if any of y'all have seen the show Arcane, I mentioned this yesterday, but uh, just on Monday, I started to watch Arcane. I've got, I thought I had one episode left. I had two. Now I've got one episode left. Arcane, uh, if you like Arcane, um, you are really going to like season one of, of this show. Now we are in, uh, we're out in the frontier, so it's a little bit different, but if you want to know almost exactly what I had in mind when I designed uh, Reseda's Towers uh, for our Wednesday campaigns, it looks virtually identical to, to, um, <laughs> to the world of Arcane, uh, to Piltover, that massive city. Piltover and Zon and... Um, I mean, there are tons and tons of districts, but what I had in my mind was virtually identical. There are so few dissimilarities that it's almost nuts. Um, uh, there's obviously we've got the luminaries instead of that small council. Um, the that unique system of the the vacuum tubes to like send stuff around, super interesting um, and not something that I had in mind. But I'm talking like down to the fact that the coins all have little holes in the center, so that they can be strung together. And most people use coin coin chains or coin strings instead of coin pouches like there's so so much about that show and i want to be clear like i said yesterday i have been designing uh this since um i mean 2018 is when i kind of started in i think on um uh, on the realms of Recetus. and so i only just saw arcane this week I have never played a single round of League of Legends, and I know virtually nothing about the lore except what I now know from Arcane. Uh, and so it's it's just really funny to see something that we developed independently that looks so, so similar. Even all the neon. I think theirs is more techy neon, like gas stuff, but my neon is uh, essentially ant farms <laughs> with, uh, with uh, fire beetle grubs. But hey, even down to the neon, even down to the holes in the coins, I'm telling y'all, it's incredible. So go ahead and check out uh, check out Arcane, and if you love it, uh, come and check out the uh, the Realms of Recitus campaigns. We're in our second one now. Our first one lasted about a year and uh, was super exciting. Um, 
But uh, yeah, go go ahead and check that out. And I want to be very clear. Arcane is maybe maybe the best animated show I've ever seen. Um, there are, I mean, the, the voice acting is absolutely incredible. They didn't, they, they had, you know, tons of animators and stuff because it is created by a game studio. I think it's, is it Riot? Is that correct? Um, but it's created, I think, by a game studio. And so, of course, they've got all these animators around. They could have gone really schlocky and lazy on the story and a lot of the other elements. They didn't. Uh, not only, like, even down to, like, the frame rate is super high on these animations, which is something that sometimes uh, animated shows will kind of push back on because it makes it a little easier um, and, and cheaper. But, I mean, just down to that, the, the voice performances are maybe some of the best that I've heard in years. Uh, I would put it up there, I think, with, like, The Last Airbender, which I would call maybe my favorite animated uh, story. So... I, I'm really, really looking forward to additional seasons. I hope I have not looked at any news, but yeah, y'all go go ahead and check that out because Arcane, it is just at the very base. It's an incredible show. But also, if you're looking for uh, some adventures in a world like Arcane, coming out on Wednesdays. Our situation has changed up a little bit. We're no longer in the city, but we're moving back in that direction. Um, this is our second campaign, and we've just entered the second scroll of this campaign. Uh, and if you want to find out more about that, we just did a Coda episode yesterday, uh, which uh, we didn't, in which we didn't actually play, didn't actually do any like uh, storytelling. It was just a chance to review some of the things that have happened in the campaign and get people caught up if anyone was joining us late, uh, like Hogwarts Hippie, who has joined us fairly recently. And so we had a chance, a great chance to talk about just the world and the lore, and uh, and get caught up on the campaign. So. There you go. Oh, and also, we're playing a system that I wrote. Um, we're, we are not playing D&D right now. We are playing a different game uh, that uses coins instead of dice. Uh, and it is, well, it's working really well so far. It's called Silver Bullet, and I am so proud of it. And so if you want to find out more about that, come hang out. Come hang out on Wednesdays. It's been absolutely grand to have you all here. I hope you have a fine evening, and I will see you all next week. Or maybe even earlier. Ooh, what does that mean? Ooh.